Our text this morning is Luke chapter 1. If you turn there and then stand with me for the reading of God's Word, Luke chapter 1. Your bulletin says we would start in verse 46. I'm going to actually start in verse 26 and read from verse 26 all the way through verse 56, the last part of that, Mary's song of praise, will be our text for this morning. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and return to her home. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'd like to begin this morning by reminding us of another story here in Scripture, a story that all of you probably know, a story that is also about a young woman being given a child. You remember the story of Hannah. Hannah was the second wife of a man named Elkanah. Elkanah had two wives, and one of his wives was very fruitful and had many children. Hannah was barren and had no child. And Hannah was desperate for a son. See, her station, her place, her status 
in that family and in her community depended upon whether or not she could produce offspring for her husband. And because she could not, because she could not, she was considered a second-class citizen. She went one day to the tabernacle where all of Israel would gather and observe the feasts and festivals. She gathered with Israel one year and went to the tabernacle and there she wept and cried out to God for a child. And Eli, the high priest, saw her and thought that she was drunk or out of her mind. And he confronted her. And she told him what she was doing there. And God that day heard the prayer of Hannah. And he gave her a son. And when the Lord gave her a son, she devoted him, gave him back to the Lord, to serve the Lord there at the tabernacle. But as she was devoting young Samuel, do you remember this story? Hannah was the mother of Samuel. As she was devoting Samuel to the Lord, she also lifted her voice in song, lifted her voice in praise, giving praise to Yahweh, to the Lord, for his deliverance of her for lifting her up from her position. 1 Samuel chapter 2 records her song of praise. Listen to Hannah's prayer of praise. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard, listen to this, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of of his anointed. Do you hear there in Hannah's prayer of praise? Do you hear a parallel? Do you hear overlap with what we just read from Mary's own mouth? There's an overlap here that cannot be ignored. Hannah had been mocked for her inability to produce a child for her husband. She had been demoted to second class citizen, unworthy of her husband's attention and of any status, but the Lord had heard her prayer and he had given her a son and she praises him for the salvation that he has given to her. And in that salvation, in that son that he gives to her, Samuel, Samuel becomes the one who anoints the king. And Hannah realizes that her deliverance, her personal deliverance 
speaks of a much bigger, much broader deliverance that is coming. And that is why she ends her prayer with this understanding that the Lord will deliver his people, his faithful ones. He will raise up his king. And in raising up his king, he will judge his enemies. That king, King David, who Samuel anoints, he establishes a line that here in our text, Mary, Mary is a descendant from, that line of David. Mary will give birth to a son who is from the line of David. And he will be that king, that anointed one that Israel had longed for. Do you see, in Mary's, in Mary's conception, in her, in her bearing the king of Israel, she answers the longing of Hannah's heart. Hannah's barrenness isn't just answered with Samuel. But in fact, her barrenness, her need for salvation is answered ultimately in the one to come from Mary's womb. And this song of praise gives us the same, the same structure of Hannah's prayer where the mighty are brought down and those of low estate like Hannah, are lifted up. That's what we see here in Mary's song. We see a division between two groups of people. You, you could think of it this way. There's a tract. There's a tract that we hand out or a tract that we, many of us have handed out called Two Ways to Live. Two Ways to Live. And you can see here, pictured in Mary's prayer of praise, you can see those two ways to live. There are those who are lowly, of humble estate, and then there are those who are lifted up and are proud in the thoughts of their own hearts. And here in Mary's song, you see that these two groups of people have two destinies that are reversed. Those who are lowly are lifted up, and those who are lifted up in the thoughts of their own hearts are brought down. This is called the Magnificat, but it could also be called the prayer or the praise of the great reversal. There are two groups of people identified, those who are being saved and those who are headed for destruction. And those who are being saved and those who are headed for destruction are the exact opposite of what our world believes. It is the exact opposite of what people would expect. There are those who are being saved and there are those who are headed for destruction. And Mary typifies for us, she represents for us, she symbolizes for us those who are being saved. Mary is the picture. She is the type of those who are experiencing God's salvation. So much like Hannah, Mary's or God's dealing with Mary, Mary's exaltation, her deliverance, this is a picture of something much broader happening, much bigger than just Mary. And Mary typifies for us those who are being saved. And in fact, as we walk through this passage, we'll see that this, this is much in line. This is very much in line with what the Old Testament has been teaching us the entire time. What Mary gives us here in her prayer of praise is exactly what the Old Testament has been proclaiming since the very beginning. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly will perish 
There are two groups of people, those who are righteous being saved and those who are unrighteous, the wicked being destroyed. There are two ways to live. And the choice before us is very plain. Will you choose the way of the righteous or will you choose the way of the ungodly? Jesus says, narrow is the way to life. Narrow is the way, and few there be that find it. But broad is the way, wide is the way that leads to death, and many go in this way. Jesus also says, those who keep or save their life will lose it. But those who lose their life for the sake of Jesus will find it. This, this is exactly what Mary is talking about in poetic form. There are two ways to live. Much in line with what Hannah says. Much in line with what the Old Testament teaches. Much in line with what Jesus himself clearly teaches. So let's look first at Mary's exaltation, her salvation. And this takes place in verse 46 through 49. Look at it there, starting in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She has praise, nothing but praise for God. Her spirit rejoices in her Savior. This is beginning At the end, really. She has received God's salvation. She has experienced God's deliverance. She has seen what God has done for her. And this this results in a praise and a rejoicing in her Savior. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Did you know know the fruit of true salvation is a heart filled with nothing but praise? And exaltation for God. This is the result of understanding what we've been given. Last week, this last week, we observed Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. It's my favorite holiday. Why? Because it is a time where we are forced to stop and to consider what we've been given. And if we stop and consider what we've been given, we have no reason not to be thankful Did you have a difficult time being thankful this last week? Did you have a difficult time praising God for his gifts of grace to you? Was it difficult with all the work and all of the labor of preparing a meal or having guests over or whatever went through your house this week in sickness? Was it difficult at times to be thankful, truly thankful for what God had done? This is why I love Thanksgiving, because we can stop and reflect upon what we've been given. And here, upon reflection, Mary is filled with praise. She is filled with rejoicing that God, her Savior, she understands what she's been given. And the result of that is that her soul, her inner being, her very self, the core of who she is. This, this is the word soul and spirit. They're synonymous terms, okay? Sometimes people talk about being soul and spirit as two different parts of man. No, they're the same thing. Soul and spirit and heart and mind. These are all talking about the immaterial part of man. This is all talking about our inner being, who we truly are. She says, at the very core of who I am, I am praising God. At the very core of who I am, I'm magnifying him, making much of him because he has done great things for me. He's been gracious toward me. He has shown me his arm of salvation. Look at what she says. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He has looked on. He has given regard to her who is of a humble estate. She displays here the character of the characteristic of true humility. True humility. Those who are God's people, 
Those who are righteous are those who are characterized by true humility. Now, what is true humility? What is true humility? Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it is thinking of yourself less. False humility. False humility is this self-deprecation or talking ill of yourself, talking bad about yourself. We, we all see this, and I, I use this word sometimes, and parents get upset with me because they don't let their kids use this word. Kids, I'm not telling you to use this word. Don't use this word. But, but false humility is saying, I'm so stupid. I'm so stupid. I'm so dumb. I, 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 I'm a nobody. I'm a nothing. But that, that's false humility. That's not really humility. You ever met somebody who's self-deprecating because they're looking for you to lift them up? Maybe this was this last week in Thanksgiving. Oh, that turkey wasn't that good. That, that, that cranberry dressing, it just wasn't really that good. But you're looking, what you're looking for is for somebody to say, oh no, it was delicious. You are a great cook. You did really well. Have you ever seen people do this false humility, the self-deprecation, because what they're wanting is for somebody to talk well about them? That's not really humility. That's, that's just pride dressed up like humility. Talking about how bad you are at something so people will uh, give you affirmation. That's false humility. No, what, what Mary displays here is true humility. Mary realizes that she truly, truly deserves nothing. And that God has given to her much more than she deserves. She realizes that, that God's actions toward her are not deserved. God has not shown her favor because she's worthy of that favor. She displays true humility. For he has looked on the humble, those of humble estate. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And here she gives us another characteristic of those who are God's people, those who are being saved. Those who are being saved display true humility, an understanding that they truly deserve nothing and that God has given them much more than they deserve. Just another word on that. Is it true of your life that you go around much of the time bemoaning what you do not have or feeling like you've been treated unfairly or unjustly for what you've not been given or what you think you deserve to be given. This is not true humility. She goes on to say that she is the servant of the Lord. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And in fact, verse 38, look up at verse 38. I read earlier, Nothing will be impossible with God. Verse 38, and Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Have you stopped and thought yet this season on how unbelievable and truly incredible the angel's visitation to Mary was? This angel comes and delivers to her a message that is unexpected and incredible, hard to believe. What would you have done in that situation? Mary's response is, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. You see, Mary saw herself, her main identity, as being the servant of the Lord. And what does a servant of the Lord do? The servant of the Lord receives the word of the Lord humbly and obediently. This is what she says. I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. I submit myself to your word. As incredible as it sounds and as hard as it is to believe and as difficult as this will be, 
I submit myself to your word. We live in an age where identity, identity has taken the priority. Identifying yourself in one way or in another. Identifying yourself by gender. Identifying yourself by skin color. Identifying yourself by economic status. Whatever your identity is. Mary saw her identity first and foremost as the servant of the Lord. Lord, I am undeserving. In myself, I am not worthy. I am your servant. If we were to nail down this identity, what, is it that, what identity is it that we cherish the most in our lives? What identity is it that we cling to for our meaning? Here Mary says, I am the servant of the Lord. I am yours, and your word reigns over my life. Even at this most incredible, unbelievable, unexpected announcement, I am your servant to do with as you please. Is that your attitude towards the Lord? Lord, I am your servant to do with as you please. It's not my life. It's your life. I have no right to anything. You, you alone have the right to my life. And whatever you ask of me, I will trust in you because I am your servant. I think instead many of us strive with the Lord. Lord, how could you do this to me? How could you let this happen to me? Why haven't you given me this? Why haven't you given me that? Why have you deprived me of what I so much deserve? Really is the attitude that most of us have often. Here Mary is saying, she is a humble, truly humble servant of the Lord. And then look at what she says. He has looked on the humble state of his servant for behold, behold, This is an attention grabber. It's meant to be. Behold, look at this. She says, I I am a humble, unworthy servant of the Lord. Behold, look at what God has done. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Look at what God has done. He has made me blessed in the sight of not just those immediately in my life, but, but for generations, I will be called blessed. He has exalted me. He has lifted me up. Me, who of of humble estate, not deserving, just a a simple servant of the Lord. He has taken and blessed me and lifted me up in the sight of many generations to come. This is what the Lord does. This is what we memorized in Ephesians 1 over the summer, right? He has given us Every spiritual blessing in Christ. He has given us everything. Do you believe that? He has blessed us with everything that we could want, truly want. And who who has he poured this blessing out upon? Not the deserving. Not the worthy. But those who are unworthy, those who have done nothing but sin against him, he has blessed us in Christ. This is what Mary says, behold, God has has acted this way towards me. He has taken his humble servant and exalted her to a place where she will be blessed by future all generations. For he who is mighty, the word mighty implies that he is the one who can do all things. Again, verse 37, nothing, the angel says to Mary, nothing will be impossible with God. And she responds in faith. She responds in obedience. I'm your servant. Do, as me, do to me as, as is your desire, Lord. I'm submitting to your word. Well, here she says, he who is mighty, he who can do the impossible, he who can do all things has done great things for me. And holy is his name. Holy is his name. 
Now, a lot of times when we think of this word holy, we only think about one facet of this. Holy means that he is separated from sin. He has no sin, and that is true, but it means so much more than that. To say that he is holy is to say that he is wholly other. He is unlike his creation. He is not like what he has made. He is set apart. He is transcendent. He is above. And his salvation, his salvation shows his holiness. His salvation is not what we would expect. Holy is his name. He has done a holy work. This is what Mary says. And this, this reality of God being a holy God Holy is his name. This is why this is why we cannot treat him flippantly. I I will tell you that my heart grieves every Christmas season. Every Christmas season and more and more so. More and more so I grieve over the flippancy that we we take with God's name. And with who God is, we are so light and flippant. This is why he is holy, is why we cannot make God into our own image. Why we cannot make God into someone who is like us. But this is our tendency, isn't it? I hear arguments all the time about why I, why I can't believe in a God like that. I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. I can't believe in a God who wouldn't save everybody. I can't believe in a God who would, who would not love everyone the same. But they forget that God is holy. He is not like us. What, what makes sense in your mind is one thing. But God's mind is wholly other. I was witnessing to a lady this last week at the office space. And she, she talks about being a Christian. And did, did you know that, by the way, you can witness to people who say they're Christians. You can witness to people. Just because they say they're a Christian doesn't actually mean they're a Christian. And just because they go to church doesn't mean that they are a believer in Christ. And even if they are a believer in Christ, they need to hear the gospel, right? We all need to hear the gospel all the time. So this is uh, something we can do, even if they say they're a Christian or go to church. Sometimes, some, that's what happens, right? Sometimes people say, oh yeah, I go to such and such church and you go inside, you go, oh, whew, I don't have to talk to them about the gospel. They're good to go. No, this, this is a good conversation I was having and she made the statement throughout our conversation. She said, I just, I just want to believe that God, God wants us just as we are. God wants me just as I am. She was talking about speaking to her teenagers, and she was saying, I just want them to know that God, God loves them just the way they are, and he wants them just the way they are. Now, that sounds good. That sounds good. But did you know God's salvation is is better than that. It's actually better than that. Because if you look at who I am, you will not see someone who is lovable. You will not see somebody who is worthy. You will see somebody who is deserving of nothing but judgment. If you look at who I am, and so I am thankful that God doesn't look at who I am and want me just the way I am. He doesn't want me just the way I am. He wants to change me. He wants to transform me. He wants to make me into something that I could never be in and of myself. His salvation is unlike anything we could ever expect or ever dream of. God rescues us from ourselves. And he transforms us into what he wants us to be. He's drawn to us as sinners. Did you know that? He is drawn to us as sinners. 
Our, our sin doesn't actually repel him. Our sin draws him to, uh, him to us. But why? Not to leave us in our sin, but to cleanse us from that sin, to rescue us from that sin, to redeem us from that sin, and to make us like himself, holy, blameless, set apart. Why does he do that? Mary says it, to show that he is mighty. To show that he is mighty. It's all about the praise and the glory that belongs to his name. He wants to transform us. He wants to make us into what we can never be. And so again, the answer here is not to find the potential within ourselves. The answer here is not to make much of ourselves and find the answer in ourselves, but to humble ourselves and to look to Him who can truly save, unlike any other. His name is Holy. And that leads then to the next section. So we have Mary's salvation, Mary's deliverance that shows us, lays the groundwork for God's deliverance, God's broader deliverance and rescue and salvation of his people. And that's what you see next. God has saved Mary. God has exalted Mary. God has rescued Mary and exalted her. And now he will do the same for his people. Look at it there, starting at verse 50. She's just said, holy is his name, verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Here, Mary redefines for us those who are God's people. Mercy, the word mercy, this is the the word implying God's steadfast love, his covenant-keeping love. Who is his covenant-keeping love for? Who is his covenant mercy for? It is for those who fear him. What does that mean, to fear the Lord? Well, she just gave us his name, right? He is holy. He is above. He is transcendent. He is holy other. The fear of the Lord is holding God and and putting God in his rightful place. This is the fear of the Lord. When we realize he is holy, we realize then our right response to him is one of fear and reverence and awe and humility. This is why Proverbs says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is to put God in his rightful place. To allow God to be God. And then to see ourselves rightly as a result. His steadfast love, his mercy, is for those who fear him. Those who see him as holy and have humbled themselves in light of who he is. That is who his mercy is for. Isn't it amazing that the one who is mighty, the one who is holy, he desires to show mercy. He desires to keep steadfast love for his people. He wants to be merciful. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. The one whose name is holy, who inhabits eternity, this one says, I dwell in my high and holy place with those who are of a lowly heart, those who are of a contrite heart. He says to revive the lowly, to revive those who are contrite. God dwells with a people. A holy God dwells with a people. And who is it that makes up this people? Those who fear the Lord. Those who are lowly. Those who are contrite. Those who acknowledge him as who he is. And acknowledge themselves as his servants. Holy is his name. From that point, then Mary turns 
her prayer of praise to reflect upon those who are experiencing judgment. So we see characterized those who are righteous, those who are being saved, and now we see those who are being judged. Look at it there in verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. So you're going to see three things here that he he does. He shows his strength with his arm, and he does three things with that arm. Number one, he scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. So, in contrast to those who are of a humble estate, in contrast to those who have seen themselves as unworthy, the Lord scatters those who are proud in their hearts. Not humble, but proud. Indeed, many throughout church history have seen pride as the core, the core essence of sin. Pride in their hearts. They are exalted in their own minds. They are concerned with themselves. Proud in the thoughts of their hearts. What is God's action towards them? He scatters them. He scatters them. Verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Again, in contrast to those of humility, those who are humble, he brought, brought down the mighty from their thrones. The mighty here refers to rulers and governors and kings and those in power. Those with the power he brings down. So, who does, he, who does he bring down? He brings down those who are proud in their hearts and those who are mighty on their thrones. He brings them down. Now, we live, we live again in a society who loves to rejoice at the toppling of those in power. We want to bring down all those that we see as being in power. And we want to exalt all those we think are oppressed. But here Mary says, it's the Lord who does this. And, and did you know, it is not only those who sit on thrones who are powerful. It is not only those who have some position who are powerful, right? Right? but those who are mighty in our own thoughts, those of us who are seeking power and control and might in and of ourselves. He scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, and he brings down the mighty from the thrones. I have to ask who or what sits on the throne of your own heart? What, what is it? What is it that sits on the throne of your own life? It's important for us to think about who sits on the throne. Do, do you sit on the throne of your own life? Do you sit on the throne? Are you the one who has the power? Are you the one, whatever social circle you're in, whatever, whatever community you live in, are you the one who is the, are you the one who's the big cheese in your life? Are you the one who is, are you the one who's in control? Maybe it's just in your family and you seek to, to assert yourselves or exert control over every person in your life. And you are, you are in control. People use all kinds of things for power, don't they? It might be a position they use for power. It might be money they use for power. Why is that? Why is it that in our world, those people who have money are the ones who have all the power? Maybe, maybe your power is your personality. I was talking recently with somebody who, that's their personality. They just, they just, Exert influence on people because that's who they are, they said. 
what is, whatever it is that you look to for your power, for your control, the Lord wants to bring down your kingdom. The Lord wants to bring you and lower you and humble you. This is what the Lord's salvation is all about. He exalts those of humble estate, and he takes the power and the pride of those who find their power and their pride in themselves. He wants to bring them down and scatter them. God's work of grace in this way in our lives is very painful. Oftentimes, it's very painful to be humbled by the Lord, isn't it? But how thankful we are for that work of grace to not leave us in that state in which he found us, but to bring us down, to humble us, to lower us. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, exalted those of humble estate. He has, verse 53, filled the hungry with good things and the rich he is sent away empty. Here we see another great reversal. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Again, in Luke and Acts, you see this theme all the way, all the way through. Those who have riches are seen as being in opposition to the Lord. And do you see what I mean now by this is opposite of what the world would understand? There are two ways to live. Those who are low and those who are lifted up. Those who are humble and those who are proud. Right? Those who are the servant of the Lord and those who will sit on the throne of their own life. This is the two ways to live. And he says here, I will fill the hungry with good things but I will send the rich away empty. And that is exactly opposite of the way our world works. Everybody's pursuit is to get more and to have more. Now, I will say, I will say there is no sin in having money. There is no sin in having money or having means. We don't want to ever say that just simply having money or having means is a sin in and of itself. We see throughout Scripture many people who have means, who have riches, but what do they do with those riches? What do they do with those? If they're trying to honor God and seek to serve God, what do they do with those riches? They give them away. They give them away. They help other people with those riches. Here he, he, he gives us a warning. Luke gives us a warning here throughout his, throughout his book, Luke and Acts. He says, riches will find you in opposition to God. Why? Because those riches give you the false sense of security. They give you a false sense that you can save yourselves. And isn't that the case? If our bank account is full, don't we feel a little bit more secure? If we have what we need financially, don't don't we feel as as if maybe everything's going to be okay? And then when those riches are taken away, what does that do to our heart? What does that do to our trust and our security when those riches are taken away? You see, it shows us where our heart really trusts. He says, I will fill the hungry with good things and I will send away the rich empty-handed. Having riches is not in of itself a sin, but trusting in your riches absolutely is And trusting in riches, I think as much as anything else in this world, leads people to destruction. Trusting in your retirement plan for your security. Trusting in your savings account. Stockpiling money. And and here's the thing. You don't have to have any money to trust in money. In fact, some of the people that trust in money the most are the people that don't have any of it. A couple of weeks ago, they had the largest, what was that, the largest Powerball jackpot or whatever the thing's called. The largest lottery ever. 
people, people lined up to get this lottery ticket, a chance to, to win billions of dollars. Why? Because they think that money will solve their problems. Some of us who have money think money has solved our problems. Some of us who don't have money think money will solve our problems. And can I tell you that if you think money will solve your problems, or if you think money has solved your problems, you don't understand your problems. You don't understand what your problem really is. Because money's not going to solve it. And this is what Mary says. The hungry he will fill with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty-handed. Mary goes from her own personal experience of exaltation and deliverance at the hand of God. Then she focuses more broadly on how the Lord responds or acts towards people. So here's what she's saying. She's saying, the Lord has done this to me because this is who he is. And because of who he is, this is how he's going to act towards others. And now, in the very last part of her prayer of praise, she focuses on God's covenant people of Israel. God has acted towards me this way because this is who he is. Because of who he is, he's going to act towards others this way. And ultimately, he's going to act towards his people Israel this way. That's what she says, verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, in remembrance again of his steadfast love, of his covenant promises. That's what mercy is saying there. He has helped his servant. He has come to the aid of his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, as he promised our fathers, as he spoke to them in his word, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The promises of God to his people Israel, to his servant Israel, and to his servant Abraham, and then to Abraham's offspring forever. And really, don't miss this, this entire prayer of praise is about defining who Abraham's offspring truly is. Who's Abraham's offspring? Is it those who are born physically descendants of Abraham? Is it it enough to be a physical descendant of Abraham to be called God's people? No. It's not Abraham's physical descendants who are called his offspring. Who is Abraham's offspring? Abraham's offspring are those who are of humble estate. Abraham's offspring are those who fear the Lord. Abraham's offspring are those who can truly say, I am a servant of the Lord. And those who are being destroyed, those who are on their way to destruction, are those who are not humble, but proud those who are not fearing the Lord, but see themselves as mighty in and of themselves. Those who are not hungry for what God alone can offer, but are seeking to be filled with the riches of this world. Those who are on their way to destruction. Who's the offspring of Israel? Those who are humble, those who fear the Lord, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. God says, I will fill them. I will live with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. This is who my people truly is. And they are called the offspring of Abraham forever. My promises are for them. Now, as I walk through those characteristics, who, who comes into your mind? Is it, is it not true that our Savior Jesus Christ has exemplified 
exactly what it looks like to be one of God's people. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to, but made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself. And after humbling himself, he took upon himself the form of a servant. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is who Jesus is. He gave himself in humility. He who was rich became poor so that we might become rich in him. He humbled himself and took upon himself our sin and died a sinner's death so that we could be saved. Rose again from the dead and defeated our sin, defeated our death. But do you see that there he rose from the dead because his desire is to Raise us up with him. He wants to exalt us in him. Save us from our sin. Who are the offspring of Abraham? Those who see his name as holy and respond with appropriate fear and true humility, those who see God as truly God and respond to that realization with humility and and fear for his holy name, recognizing that salvation that cannot come in ourselves, recognizing that salvation cannot be gained in my own strength, but my might will be scattered. My pride will be scattered brought down recognizing salvation can be accomplished only in his arm can only be accomplished in the very one who Mary carries in her womb my salvation can only be accomplished in Jesus Jesus and his righteousness now defines who God's people are. Not, not physical Israel anymore, but Jesus. He defines who God's people are. Being found in his righteousness, not my own. Being found in his death, being found in his resurrection. This is how God has provided salvation for us. There are two ways to live. There are two ways to live. Those who are lowly will be lifted up in Christ. Those who are lifted up in and of themselves will be brought down. And those are the two ways to live. My desire for you this Advent season is to reflect, to reflect upon your own life. Who are you trusting in first and foremost for salvation? Which, which way are you choosing? Which way are you displaying in your life? How? How are we trusting in ourselves? Make this Advent season a time of repenting, of bringing ourselves low, preparing ourselves in light of his first coming, preparing ourselves for his second coming. Do you realize there is a second coming? Jesus is coming back, and when he does, these two ways to live, these two ways to live will be seen very clearly. And as Psalm 1, as Psalm 1 declares, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly in that day, the way of the ungodly will perish. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its simple admonition to us and challenge to us. I pray that we would be a people who choose to live 
lowly, humble, as your servants, living in reverence and awe to your name, magnifying you, rejoicing in you, making much of you with our lives. And Father, where we live for our own glory, where we live to boast of self, where we live trusting in our own strength and our own might and our own riches, you would convict us of that, expose that to us, and drive that attitude away. Let us be a people prepared for your coming, a people who live as your people have always lived. In the fear of you, reverencing your name is holy, trusting in your salvation alone. Thank you for Jesus providing our salvation and even the model of salvation for us who humbled himself, made himself of no reputation, and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Truly, he is your servant, Father. And let us be found in him, trusting in him, and willing to lay down our life for what we see as valuable for his sake. And you have promised mercy your steadfast love to those who find our salvation in him, in him alone. I pray for all of us this morning that we would meditate on these truths throughout the week, help us to not let these go, but to chew on them, to reflect upon them, to grow as a result of your word, we pray in your name. Amen.